0: This week, Nick and Ann are back for a new episode with special guest Chris Crane, Director of Cannabis Development at KCSA and a sometimes host here on The Green Rush. Chris joins us this week to discuss his recent Forbes column where he dissects the recent call by the Department of Health and Human Services to reschedule cannabis and dives into why this is a big deal. In this conversation, Nick, Ann, and Chris discuss the potential implications that rescheduling will have for business, culture, and social equity within cannabis, as well as Chris's perspective on how this will continue to unfold. If you're interested in learning more about KCSA, Chris's thoughts and insights on the latest in the cannabis industry or his Forbes column, check out the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow KCSA and Chris on LinkedIn, Twitter, and other top social media platforms. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Chris Crane, Director of Cannabis Development for KCSA Strategic Communications.
1: Welcome back to The Green Rush. Uh, We had some big news a couple of weeks ago that we have been wanting to talk to no one else about other than Chris Crane. Um, So Chris is here. Um, He penned an amazing article um, in Forbes, we'll link to it in the show notes, on um, the Department of Health and Human Services call to uh, recommend that marijuana be moved from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3 under federal law, meaning that it no longer views cannabis as a drug with high abuse potential and no medical value. Um, there is a ton to digest here. Um, and I think let's just start with, Chris, what was your initial take here? You kind of called it.
2: Uh, I, I did kind of call it. Although, I mean, to be fair, like it wasn't it wasn't that hard to call if you've been paying attention to what's going on in D.C. I think the problem is people have been paying so much more attention to safe banking um, and that's kind of been like the big story. Everyone's wondering when spanking going to pass, what's going to happen there. And I think people kind of missed the, like, they, they missed the big story here, which was, you know, when president Biden called for all those federal pardons, uh, last year, late last year, um, that was the big story, right? The like Biden calls for federal pardons for marijuana possession, um, and, that, you know, that was what the media picked up on, even though, you know, the reality was like that was never really going to do much. Right. There is basically nobody in federal prison for marijuana possession, which is all he called for. But at the same time, he called for a review of where cannabis is scheduled and and, and explicitly said that it was ridiculous that marijuana was in the same schedule as, as, as things like heroin um, and, uh, and and and. I think you may have called ILSD, I forget which other one in Schedule 1. Um, and so it, it was clear that this had been a priority for the administration. And I think the other thing that was really telling was that this original announcement happened just before the midterm elections, right? Which, which, which told me, and I think it should have told, you know, folks in general that this is something that the Biden campaign folks care about, right? That they see this as something that, um, you know, could potentially motivate young voters to turn out for Democrats and turn out for, you know, the president in 2024, you know, a group that is generally not very excited about, um, you know, uh, uh, voting for an 80-plus-year-old president. Um, And so it was clear that this, you know, this was a priority. This review has been ongoing for almost a year now since that announcement was made last October. Um, and when you talk to folks in DC who were following this, everyone's like, yeah, this is really happening. And they wanna get it done and implemented before the 2024 presidential election, which meant that you had to have a recommendation this year. Um, right, because there's a process that they have to go through after that recommendation in order to actually get it rescheduled. that probably take close to a year. Um, and so if they wanna run on this, It had to happen about now. So if you were really following this and reading the tea leaves, it wasn't that surprising. But I just think that most in the industry and in the media had their attention focused elsewhere because we've kind of been like conditioned to like pay attention to safe banking at the expense of everything else.
3: Right. Is cannabis... Cannabis uh, issue voters, they're typically, you know, that was a great way, you know, 10 years ago to get people out to vote. Is it really going to make that big of an impact, do you think, going into the 2024 election? Or is it kind of a given right now that like, yeah, people support cannabis and the federal government's just got to get their get out of their own way? It's a good
2: question. I don't think anyone really knows. Um, I I know. Look, what we do know is that young voters like cannabis legalization um, and support cannabis legalization. Um, and fairly much, across, you know, fairly across the board, right? Whether they identify as Democrats, Republicans, or um, independents, right? Young voters typically are supportive of this issue. Whether or not it's an issue that actually motivates them to turn out to vote, there's not a whole lot of evidence out there. And in fact, the limited evidence that's out there, I think actually supports the case that it, it, it probably doesn't turn that many folks out. Um, uh, but you know when you're when you're when you if you're you know if you're President Biden and you're running a campaign, where like the margins make a big difference, um, right? I mean you're you're talking about you know the last two elections that were decided by you know tens of thousands of votes, right? A relatively small number in a small handful of states. Um, these margins matter, and if if if, you know, marijuana reform can swing. 5000 young voters in Wisconsin that could be the difference in winning and losing the presidential election right so like i don't think that they're going to i don't think that this is going to be like a cornerstone issue for the biden campaign right it's not going to be like on their yard signs all over the place it's not going to be the thing that they're the thing that they're running on but it's a thing that they're going to tout um that might turn some voters on the margins and in, 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 as tight as these elections are like those margins really matter
3: just want to get like a Biden like sign for my for my house with like a big pot leaf on it. I think that would be hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. I mean, what, <laughs> unbelievable. right? For, of all people, right? What's
2: next? Like you know, Feinstein, uh, Diane Feinstein, uh, you know, uh, marijuana leaf uh, uh, cannabis, Oh my
1: god! The, the big poster like I yeah, know. it's
2: pretty. For for those of us who've been around this for long enough, uh, this is kind of you know, kind of kind of bizarre world here.
1: What is this? Um- what does this do for safe banking? Like, is this just like, is it, is it dead? Does it not matter anymore? I mean, there was like, you you know, you kind of talked about like, it's, it's a little bit toothless. It, it It's always kind of been a little bit toothless since the industry is so everybody who needs banking was able to get it. No, that's not fully true. That's not true. But a lot of well, people yeah, have established people get, banking yeah, relationships, right? Bank accounts, like, accounts, it's not, accounts. Right. But it's not like, oh, I wanted to start a new business. Let me go to Bank of America. It is not that. Right. So right. I guess where, where does that leave legislation like safe banking?
2: doesn't really have any, I mean, it doesn't have any direct impact, right? This is a rescheduling effort uh, that's going to take place through the administration. Um, this doesn't go through Congress. It doesn't really involve Congress. Um, so at the, you know, on the face of it, um, that doesn't have a direct impact on the banking legislation in Congress. That said, it, I don't think it hurts. Uh, and if anything, it may help a little bit, if only because, you know, it puts a little bit of wind, you know, sort of wind in the political sails of this issue in general. Um, it's kind of bringing this issue a little bit more to the forefront of, uh, you know, sort of political consciousness and it might you know, provide a little bit of a, you know, like a sort of a, a political push to get something like, bank, like banking done. Because this issue, right, if we get rescheduling, we get it down to schedule three, doesn't do anything to solve the banking issue, right? It's still illegal. Uh, all of these state businesses are just as illegal the day it, the day after it's scheduled to or rescheduled schedule three as as they were the day before. Um, it doesn't fix the banking issues. It doesn't open up institutional lending. It may open up new lending, but that's more of a byproduct than it is a direct result. Um, but safe banking is still necessary um, and if we can get that done, right, this would be quite a one-two punch. I mean, I remember when when, you know, when when the National Cannabis Industry Association was founded a decade or so ago, as the first trade association for the cannabis industry, the, you know, it, it, the, the priority issues were getting rid of 280E and passing safe banking, um, right? It was, it, was, it was banking in 280E. Here we are 10 years later, we don't have either of those. Um, and rescheduling the big thing that it does is it gets rid of 280e if it gets rescheduled to three or lower and so if we can do that and then get banking through congress the industry is in a very different position um, right than it is today uh, or has been for the past decade
3: is that why we're seeing the the major jump in in cannabis stocks because i think we've seen you know some some have been up uh as much as 20 percent based on this news and so it's like all right, is this another big piece of hype that investors can get into, or is this something that really looks realistic and we could see, you know, the markets actually, you know, become healthy again?
2: Uh I think it, a little bit remains to be seen. I do understand the enthusiasm behind the, you know, where the markets are and why the stocks have been running since this announcement came into place. Because if this does happen, um, 280E goes away. That's a really big deal, and I mean you can make the argument that's an even big that would be have an even bigger real world impact on these businesses than um, than banking reform, um, right? Like Ann said, pretty much every well, every, I mean basically every canvas business has a bank account now. The, the reason banking reform becomes important is it opens up access to institutional lending, um, and you know things like merchant services and being able to take credit cards. Uh, but really, it's the, the lending that's the big that's the big piece of this. Um, but two eighty e crushes margins in this industry. Uh, It makes it so that it's virtually impossible, if you are paying all your taxes, it's virtually impossible to turn a profit in the industry, Um, which depresses lending. I mean, part of the reason why we see these, you know, 30 to 40% effective cost of capital uh, rates that we see in these cannabis lending deals is because companies have virtually no free cash flow that they can use to service their debt. Um, And if you get rid of 280E, that opens up a whole bunch of new free cash flow. It probably brings new lenders, you know, cannabis lenders, right? Not traditional institutional lenders, but cannabis lenders into the space. It brings more money into the existing lenders that brings more competition in. That should bring rates down, maybe allow some of these companies to refinance the toxic debt that they already have on their books. Um, So getting rid of 280E is a really, really, really big deal and should cause those stocks to rise. Now, if this doesn't happen, and it's not a guarantee it's gonna happen, it's just a recommendation by HHS. Um, these stocks are gonna plummet again, um, right? We've seen this. We've seen this. 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 This story before, um, right? We've seen when it looked like safe banking was gonna pass. You see a, a a spike in the stocks, and then it, and then it, and then it doesn't pass, and they just plummet, and that'll probably happen here if this doesn't really happen. Um, but if it does, like there is reason for optimism for these public companies, and and. I mean, I hate using the term, but like, there is a trickle down effect um, here uh, in terms of you know more uh, more capital coming into the industry doesn't just benefit the big publicly traded companies. It also benefits the smaller operators, the single state operators, the privates, um, right? I mean, the, the, I I would argue that right now the companies that are struggling the most are the you know startup companies, social equity companies, because they can't even get the money to get off the ground in the first place. Um, and so I, you know, this is this is a really big deal from a business perspective. It is not where we need to go. Right, we need to go to descheduling, not rescheduling. Um, but it's a great first step, and it'll have a real impact on the businesses in the space just by getting rid of two eighty e.
1: Well, you had said something earlier, and I just want to, I guess, circle back to it. But, you know. These these state programs and you know the dispensary down the street from me in, in Los Angeles you know is going to be just as illegal as it was under Schedule One. Can you just say more about that? Because I think a lot of people are under the impression that this is de facto legalization and it is not.
2: It is not at all de facto legalization. That's right. Um, so right now, as a Schedule, you know, while we're in while it's Schedule One. Um right, we're all clearly in violation of federal law. Schedule one drugs can't be distributed uh for you know for, for any reason, right? Um they, they're recognized as having a high potential for abuse and no recognized medicinal value. Um Schedule three recognizes medicinal value and a lower potential for abuse, but schedule three substances by and large have to be prescribed by a doctor and distributed through a pharmacy and in order for that to happen they have to pass three-phase clinical trials by the you know through the food and drug administration right through the fda um and you know and you know and and in order to do that right they've got to meet really rigorous um uh uh, standards they have you know the products have to be produced through um you uh, you know gmp process it has to be you know, completely standardized uh, and and replicable every time, right? like no variation in, in in product and production. You can't do that. <laughs> so with yeah, you can't do
1: that with right? a plant. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, you can't exactly. You can't do that with cannabis. It's just not possible, um, right? So n- nobody's going to be getting a DEA license to you know FDA approval and a DEA license to manufacture and distribute cannabis as a Schedule Three substance. Which means that everything these businesses are doing is still a violation of federal law. Um, right, we're still illegal businesses here. Um, we're just, we're just violating a less restrictive, uh, class, class of federal law than we were, than we would, than we are currently, uh, where it's in schedule one. Um, and it does open up new potential risks, um, right? There's a possibility, and the worry there is that the FDA is gonna start sending fines to all these businesses for distributing a schedule three drug without a license. I'm not especially worried about that because the reality is, like, they have the ability to do that now when it's Schedule 1, and they don't do that. Um, so I don't think that, like, the fear really goes from the DEA, you know, it, the DEA coming in guns blazing to the FDA coming in with, you know, letters blazing, right, with, you know, letters with, you know, with, with saying we're going to fine you if you don't shut down your business. I don't think the, the industry is going to get fined into existence by the FDA again because they already have that power now. Um, to enforce these rules around Schedule 1, and they don't do it with these state legal businesses. Um, so I think, you know, for as far as these businesses' relationship with federal law goes, it's, it's pretty much status quo.
3: So on that, then, I want to go back to, you know, what you're talking about where the, the smaller operators that are, are trying to get up and going, does that you know, limit the, the potential for growth opportunities for them? Like, cause when I first heard this news, I was thinking like, okay, does this open it up for some smaller growers in Arizona to be able to export their product more comfortably to other States and stuff like that? Give them open up to to new consumer bases or because that's illegality still there, that, that, uh, interstate commerce still isn't going to be something that we're going to see. Um, even if it's schedule three.
2: Yeah. This doesn't do anything for interstate commerce um doesn't doesn't change anything when it comes to interstate commerce um now and 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 that the effort to get interstate commerce implemented is kind of being run through a totally different track um you you probably the 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 way if it happens um then we 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 had a nice conversation with adam smith about this and i think we re-ran that um recently on the feed um right that that's going to happen through a guidance memo from like the justice department basically saying that you know if states allow it, then we see that, you know, the Justice Department's basically already said, if you know, if states allow it, we don't see it as a, as a, as a good use of our prosecutorial resources to go after those businesses. And they could just apply that to um, interstate commerce between two states with a pact to allow it. Um, that's not at all impacted by this, um, right, because... None of these businesses are going to have a are going to have their product go through phase three trials and FDA approval and get a DEA distribution license. They don't have any more right to 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 export their product to other states than they do currently under the current regime. So it doesn't change anything as far as the efforts to implement interstate commerce go.
1: I feel like this is all still really relying on on a handshake agreement with the federal government um, that, you know, we're not going to pursue, you know, go, like, go ahead about your business. Um, but that just feels so, um, I, I mean, it, it's been how, I guess we've all been living for decades now, but, or for the, at least the last 10 years, but what happens if there is um, a new administration that comes in that is a drug warrior that is that hates this issue? I mean, isn't there the possibility that, you know, they can say, okay, I'm going to now double down and we're actually going to enforce these laws on the books? Or am I just
2: yeah. no, being they a absolutely conspiracy theorist? No, 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 yeah. it's not a conspiracy yeah. theorist. They absolutely could do that. I mean, if, 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 if you recall in 2016, 20- 17 right or late 2016 early 2017, right? I know I know a lot of us have tried to like, you know block those memories from our brain But um, you know when when Trump won the election and he appointed Jeff Sessions as his Attorney General There was a lot of worry and a lot of fear in the industry that that meant that there was going to be a crackdown coming. Right. Well, he and rescinded one of
1: the, the coal memo. Yeah,
2: that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. One of the first things that he did was to, rec- yeah, was to rescind the coal memo, which was the you know official document that provided this sort of this, you know, call it handshake agreement. Right. Um, between, you know, between the states and, and the federal government. So everybody was was like, you know, girding themselves for a federal crackdown that just never came. Um, Right. And if we have a new administration, I mean, look, I think if we have a new Trump administration and it, look, the reality is, if it's not going to be Biden, it's probably going to be Trump. Right. Like he's probably going to be the nominee. Um, uh, again, he, the polling is it's not close. Um, right. Like Trump will probably be the Republican nominee. That's a whole other conversation. Fascinating to see how somebody's going to run for president while you know going through four criminal trials and possibly being convicted in the middle of a campaign. Um, uh, but you know that, that's that's for that's for a different podcast. That's for our friends um, at Pod Save
1: America. There you go. <laughs> yes,
2: yes, or, or or every political podcast in America. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, if Trump wins and is the next Republican president, right? We've already seen what a, how a Trump administration handles this issue. I think it's very likely that there's no difference than, you know, there's no difference than there was in the first, you know, Trump term, uh, which is, look, that's a good thing for us, right? The, even though the Cole memo was rescinded by Jeff Sessions, they never acted on it. I mean, their, their actual policy was effectively the policy laid out in the Cole memo. Uh, that never changed. Um, how would a DeSantis administration or a Haley administration or a Pence or Christie? No, they're not. I mean, that's that's, that's
1: pretty,
2: that's pretty, that's pretty wild. Uh, uh, that's not going to happen. Um, but you know, you know, how how would, you know, how would one of these other Republican potential, uh, presidents react? No idea. They could, they could come in and say, I'm directing the DEA to go in and shut down every one of these state legal cannabis businesses like that. without a change in federal law, and this again, is why we need descheduling, not rescheduling. Um, right without a change in federal law, that's always a possibility. Now, before we you know move on, it is worth saying it isn't really something that keeps me up at night um, because these state markets are so established. There are, a lot of people in the C-suites of these companies who are very well politically connected. They are very, very popular in their states. They're very popular in swing states like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Arizona, uh, right, in particular. I don't think it would be good politics for a new administration, you know, a new Republican administration or whoever to come in and start being the drug warriors that crack down on legal marijuana. Um, I think the political people around them who read polls would take a look at that and go, you're going to cost yourself reelection by doing this. What the hell are you doing? Let's just maintain status quo. Bluster, talk about it, right? Like be the moral warrior. You feel like you need to be um, through your words, but don't go shut all these programs down because it'll be a PR disaster and massively unpopular.
3: I want to shift gears and talk about, you know, our consolidation and M and a activity it, with this news. Is that something that, you know, I, I know earlier this year, we saw the Columbia care Cresco deal fall apart just because there's so many different hurdles that they, that they had to, to get through on that with yeah. this news. Does that change anything for, for M and a, are we going to see an increased activity um, with it? Or is it still just like a wait and see until, you know, the DEA makes a ruling?
2: Uh I, I, It's a little bit, <laughs> sort of a little bit of both, but I, I think it really, we got to wait and see what happens with the DEA and see if this happens. Um, I, I don't think that, re- that there's anything inherent about going to Schedule 3 that should cause more MA activity in the space. However, I do think it will, not because Schedule 3 does anything, you know, for the, you know, d- 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 there's nothing about its classification, right, that should cause... MA to happen on its own. I think the impact is gonna be if this does happen, like I think the stocks continue to run and these companies all of a sudden are worth a lot more money and they have a lot more, you know, they have a lot more capital and and stock to play with. Like part of the reason why MA deals are falling apart all over the, all over the place over the past year is because these public company stocks have been, you know, drowning. And with the stocks being as low as they've been, one, you can't raise money. You can't do a big equity raise because it's just too dilutive. Um, And two, you can't use your stock to complete these deals because, also, it's too dilutive. And also, you know, like you know, deal like that one. I don't know if that's the reason why it fell apart. I actually don't think it is, but um, we have seen lots of deals fall apart where you know the two the two companies agree on terms of an M and A transaction. It then often takes about a year, particularly when you're involving a public company, it takes about a year for that deal to close, um, right? Because there's, you know, state-based regulatory issues you have to go through. There's federal regulatory issues you have to go through. And in the over the course of that year, in many of these cases, the stock prices became worth a fraction of what they were when the deal was consummated. And so the company that's selling, right, the seller in that case is going like, I don't want your worthless stock anymore. Like, I thought I was taking on stock that was worth $100 million, and now it's worth... 15. Well, I'm not selling my company for $15 million, um, right? And so those deals fall apart because the stock values plummet. If the stocks go back up, now companies are gonna go out and start doing equity raises in a way that they weren't before. Um, and they are gonna be willing to part with more stock um, to help complete these transactions, uh, which will be more attractive to the companies that are, that are selling. So I, I think just the stock, pr- the stock price alone, the, 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 the increase in the stock prices, is what's gonna drive m and activity rather than anything about it, anything inherent about like schedule three itself.
1: What does this do for people in prison for nonviolent drug offenses? I mean, we talked about the simple possession, which doesn't really exist on the federal level, but there's still 2,700 people sitting in jail for, um, you know, cannabis-related offenses. Does this do anything for them?
2: Nope, nothing for them. Um, uh, unfortunately, and again, this is why descheduling is so important. Uh, right, that we should be looking. We should celebrate the positive impacts that rescheduling would have but like not take our eye off the ball and think the job's anywhere close to done um the folks sitting in federal prison have no are not impacted by this in any way again still illegal right schedule three drugs are still illegal codeine is a schedule three drug if you were to go out and possess codeine or distribute codeine without a license you would be arrested and face jail time um, right? Vicodin, all sorts of other, I mean, you hear all the time about people getting arrested and being prosecuted for selling prescription drugs, right? Or possessing prescription drugs without a prescription. That's what we're talking about here. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't change that fact. It doesn't help people who, are, who've, who have you know, been arrested or prosecuted or in prison. Now, a lot of those folks should have been impacted by Biden's pronouncements of pardons, I don't think anyone's actually been released from jail as part of that. I think that, that, that seemed to be just a PR stunt. Um, but again, because the, of the folks sitting in federal prison for cannabis, virtually none of them are there for possession. Um, federal government doesn't really prosecute possession offenses. Um, it's very, very rare occasions. Sometimes like somebody possessing in like a federal building and even the majority of those are just turned over to state, uh, state courts anyway. Um, there's some on like native American lands that get prosecuted in federal court, but it's extremely rare, uh, for someone to be prosecuted for possession under federal law, federal, fe- you know, federal prosecutors, federal law enforcement, they focus on traffickers you know large scale distributors traffickers possession cases are almost exclusively done at the state level and the federal gu- you know and 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 you know federal government doesn't have jurisdiction that to uh, and the president doesn't have jurisdiction to pardon state offenders so unfortunately like this move doesn't really have any real impact on any of those folks state or federal
3: I want to go back to talking about public companies chris because most of the publicly traded cannabis companies are listed on the CSE right now which is a much smaller exchange in comparison to you know new york stock exchange nasdaq even the tsx does this news or let, let's say the dea um goes along with the hhs recommendation does that open up um opportunities for uplisting to to a major u.s exchange or to the tsx are we going to see that kind of movement happen
2: um it, so explicitly it doesn't um, doesn't have any impact it doesn't you know this this there because these companies are still in violation of federal law and not distributing a schedule 3 substance with the license to do so i think uplisting to the dow or the nasdaq or us exchange i think is is pretty unlikely at least in the near term um, the tsx is an interesting case i think there's more of an argument to be made that it could lead to tsx uplisting in 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 you know TSX being the Toronto Securities Exchange, um, the big the big one in Canada, it's possible because really there's no policy uh, right that these exchanges have uh, I believe right that, that that prohibits them from listing these companies. It's a risk tolerance uh, uh, calculus that they've made um, that you know the TSX has adopted its own internal policy. They're not going to list a company that is federally illegal in their own country, um, but the, you know the but the but but they can you know they can change that policy right they can say hey now that it's schedule three and the U S federal government is uh, you know is is easing up a little bit on their rules we're now comfortable with the idea of listing U S based cannabis companies. Wouldn't shock me if that were the case. I'm not necessarily predicting it, but it's certainly within the range of outcomes. Um, and you know, does the you now, the, the, the Dow, the NASDAQ follow sometime after that? Probably not, but you know, again, potentially a year or two down the road, a couple of years down the road, maybe. Um, the TSX is the one that I would be paying the most attention to, and even that, I'm not like hugely optimistic, but I think the, I think the potential exists.
1: I can't remember if we talked about it on the podcast or just one of our other, you know, multi-weekly phone chats. (laughs) But, you know, you had said at one point that the DEA really – and sorry, we're all over this. We're all over the place. We're talking business. We're talking culture. We're talking social equity. But sorry, just go with my brain. Um, The the DEA had wanted initially to put this at a schedule, too. Um, and yes. that, and that the, you know, HHS is kind of publicly now pushing them, uh, to probably reconsider that, but there's still the oppor- there's still the option for the DEA to not take that recommendation and say, either we're keeping it status quo or we're going to move it to schedule two. what are the chances of that happening?
2: I think it's a real chance. Um, I mean, look, the the reality is we 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 don't know. Um, But the DEA is traditionally, I think this should go without saying, not particularly friendly to cannabis. Um, I mean, it's quite literally their job to be hostile to cannabis consumers. Um, uh, So this is not an agency staffed with career bureaucrats who are going to be you know, uh, openly friendly to the idea of, of you know, opening things up and, and real, you know, real meaningful reform, that's the part that, frankly, that's the part that worries me the most, um, is that the DEA is going to, like, try and, you know, split the baby here and say, well, we're not comfortable with Schedule 3, but we'll go to Schedule 2. Schedule 2 doesn't fix 280E. Schedule 2 does basically nothing to help the industry. Um, so that worries me. That does worry me. That said, I do think that there is a lot of political pressure on the DEA to accept HHS's recommendation, um, right? Because as we talked about earlier, I think that this is something that the, the the administration really wants going into the presidential election. I think there's a lot of political pressure on the DEA um, to, to accept HHS's recommendation. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's a big deal. And you, you do seem to have a head of the DEA or DA administrator at this point, right, who, number one, was appointed by this president. That, that should be meaningful, right? Um, and who doesn't seem to be the type of career drug war zealot that you typically get in that position. Um, so I'm cautiously optimistic. That they will accept HHS's recommendation. You know what you referred to about them wanting Schedule Two. That was never anything that was like formally reported on. It was you know what we were hearing out of D.C. was that the DEA was pushing HHS to go for Schedule Two and Schedule instead of Schedule Three. That they were bringing up uh, that Schedule Three might violate you know international treaties or UN treaties. I think that's an absolute red herring argument. Um, uh, but uh, it was probably the best one that they had. So look we don't know I, I again cautiously optimistic because i think the political pressure is going to be very real um but if the DEA came out you know in a couple weeks and said hey we're recommending we're 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 going with schedule 2 wouldn't surprise me at all it would be very disappointing but i wouldn't be surprised
3: then let's look at the, the, the next 12 to 14 months. What does the timeline look like for, for when we may expect a, uh, a DEA ruling on this or are there any other, you know, uh, major events coming up within that, uh, before the election next year that, that you're closely watching Chris, that we, we should be looking for over the next you know, 12, 14 months.
2: Yeah. I mean, the DEA is the big one and uh, there, there is not a timeline that they have to respond by. Um, so they, you know, the other, the, other, the other potential concern here is that they, you know, they could just slow roll this thing. Um, that's, you know, that's a possibility. I don't think it's likely though, again, because the motivation here from the president at least or from the administration seems to be political um, and they want this as something that they can run on in 2024. And so if that's the case, it's, it's harder to see the DEA really slow playing this thing um, right, because they, they, they have, they're gonna, in order to get this implemented before the election, right, the DEA recommendation kind of has to happen this year, right? Cause there's a process they're gonna have to follow. There's a, there's a, you know, they're gonna have to release draft rules. There's gonna be a public comment period, right? That process takes some time. And so if they want to get this done by next fall, um, I think we need to hear from the DEA this year. And I think that's likely after that, there's not a whole lot that like we need to like Really follow closely. Um, there aren't really many roadblocks. It's just a matter of implementation at that point, um, and how long that takes. And that again should probably be, you know, a year-ish process. Um so it's I think at that point it's kind of just a matter of time.
1: You think we've missed anything here? <laughs> Um, anything else keeping you up at night or anything? I mean, cannabis related, um, <laughs> anything uh, just the else? DEA,
2: but the, uh, DA always, you know, <laughs> the DEA always, know, should always okay. keep you up at night. Yeah. Yep, that's, uh, yep. you know, but in this case, it's not, you know, it's not a fear of like, you know, getting raided or getting a business shut down. It's just a fear that they, you know, that they're going to. That they're gonna kind of go rogue, so to speak, right, and not do what the administration wants them to do, because uh, again, it's the DEA, uh, right? This is not a uh, you know this is not a friendly agency, right? These are the people that lock up people for growing, distributing, sometimes possessing cannabis. Uh, this has been their job for a long time. The people that work at the DEA, right? You got to remember these are, these are government agencies. And so most of the people that work in these agencies are not, are not like political appointees. They don't change between a democratic and a Republican administration, their career, career bureaucrats, career employees, and those that have been career employees in the DEA, right? They tend to not be big fans of cannabis. Um, so. That that's the that that's the one that thing that we should really watch. Again, if we get past that and they do they do say we're going schedule three, I don't want to say we're in the clear, because you just you know, there's always you know, there's always there's always unforeseen problems that could arise, but I think I think we've we've gotten past the the biggest potential hurdle here. And I think at that point it probably is a matter of of, of time.
1: All right, well we're glad that We have you to help us through all of these weird times. Uh, So thank you so much. Always fun.
2: Yeah, never a dull (laughs) moment. Never a dull moment to the cannabis industry. No,
1: never a dull moment. Um, And uh, we look forward to having you back. Um, And keep up the good work on the Forbes column. Again, we'll put a uh, um, link into the show notes. Um, and yeah, I think that ended up
2: being my, I think that ended up being my most viewed column I've, I've I've ever read. Really? Uh, You had, and the
1: one, you had one in 2020, I think that was like gangbusters too. Is it better than that Yeah, I had one,
2: one, uh, uh, you know what, unfortunately they, they changed, they changed publishing systems and so they no longer have the stats for any articles that are more than like a couple years, like two and a half years old. Um, so I don't, I, and I don't remember what the number, the, the highest, I think the most read one before this was either, there was like, it was funny cause it was kind of a fluff piece that I wrote at one point about like the next States to legalize. Um, it was just like a summary of some, uh, you know, uh, ballot initiatives in 2020. Uh, there was that one. And then there was one, um, the one about, I laid out the political case for why Trump, when he was still president, should support legalization going into the 2020 election, uh, which I think I wrote that one in, God, I think I wrote that in like 2018. Um, uh, Seventeen or 18 wow. uh, sort of laying out the political case, and that, that yeah. one got a ton of views. So I I'm not sure. I'm not. I I, I don't want to say for certain that this was the most read, but um, it was definitely up there uh, to the point where you know clearly this is something that folks are really following. Um, yeah, as of today, it had eighty four thousand plus views. Um, so it's it's right there with the uh, it's right there with the most popular ones I've written. So clearly this is something that, that that you know at least forms readers seem to care about, which is nice. Yeah,
1: for sure. Um, well, you'll get a couple more readers after this, we hope.
2: <laughs> so, Hopefully, yeah.
1: <laughs> Chris, thank you so much as always. We appreciate
2: you. Yeah, absolutely. Always fun to be here.
1: Huge thanks to our own Chris Crane, Director of Cannabis Development for KCSA. We value his opinion. We love chatting with him. So, thank you, thank you, thank you, Chris, for helping us really understand what's going on here. As always, thanks for listening. If you want to chat with us, we're on Twitter at the underscore Green Rush, on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore Podcast, or drop us an email: Green Rush at KCSA. We love your feedback and guest ideas. And don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take.